You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Do you believe in miracles? Well, I would never guess that, judging from your response. (laughs) We have in Acts chapter 3 the very first miracle that is recorded in the book of Acts. Now, it's not the first miracle recorded in all of the Bible, you know that. It's not even the first miracle recorded in the New Testament era, you know that. And you may even contend and say, well, Acts chapter 3 is not the first miracle. What about speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2? That's definitely a miraculous thing because you have given to the disciples or the apostles this miraculous ability to speak a foreign tongue that they have never learned and never studied. It's intelligible, it's translatable, it is discernible, it is understandable. And that certainly is a miraculous thing, but it's not what we commonly and technically refer to as a miracle. When we say a miracle, what we mean is not just a supernatural event, but we mean the effecting of something through a miracle worker. And that is what we have in Acts chapter 3. It's the first recorded miracle in the book of Acts. It's not the last. And I don't even think that this particular miracle was the first miracle that the apostles did. I think it's just the first one that Luke records. Because back in chapter 2, we saw that the many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles as God was bearing witness to His Word through them of what they were saying and teaching. And I think what Luke does is from those early days of the church as there were these miraculous things happening through the apostles, Luke picks one particular miracle to record for us that sort of sums up basically everything in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And it serves as a transition to the content of chapters, the rest of chapter 3 and the events in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. Let me illustrate that for you. It's a summary miracle in this respect. The miracle that Peter performs in Acts chapter 3 is of the same class, the same style, the same power that Jesus did many times. Luke causes a lame beggar to walk. He gives him the ability to walk. You recognize instantly that that was something that Jesus did. He made the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and cleansed lepers. We're talking about not some stage show parlor trick that the apostles have the ability to do, but Luke demonstrates for us in this very first miracle what he said back in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 in the very beginning, that what he wrote in the Gospel was all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And now what he's writing for us in the book of Acts is all that Jesus has continued to do and to teach, but through his apostles. And so Luke picks a miracle that is very similar in the details and very similar in its power to what Jesus had already done to demonstrate that Jesus was still causing the lame to walk, but now he was doing it through his apostles at that time. So that's what you have in Acts chapter 1. Remember in Acts chapter 2 it said that daily they were at the temple? And where does this miracle take place? At the temple. Acts chapter 2 says the signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. 
And here Luke gives us a little detail as to the type of signs and wonders that were taking place to the apostles. So we have in chapter 3 this first miracle, which sort of wraps up some of the highlights of what he's been talking about in chapters 1 and 2, and it also serves as a transition. I want you to notice something before we get into the miracle itself. This miracle at the beginning of Acts chapter 3 becomes the central focus of everything that happens through the rest of chapter 3 in chapter 4, and really it launches the details of the rest of the the book of Acts as it relates to Peter's ministry. This one single ministry, this one single miracle at the beginning of Acts chapter 3, where Luke, where Luke records for us Peter causing this lame beggar to walk, it, it causes conflict with Jewish leaders, which becomes the next focus of the book. We, we move from the focus being on Pentecost in chapters 1 and 2 to persecution beginning in chapter 3. And because of this miracle, Peter and John sort of have this opportunity before the crowds to preach, and Peter has the opportunity to preach, and he does. And then because he preaches, he's arrested and they're put in prison, and then Peter has another opportunity to preach to the religious leaders, which he does. And all of those events in chapters 3 and 4 are started by this one incident. And it launches a persecution and opposition to the religious leaders that to this time they really have not known. So let's look at the details of what it is that Peter did that inflamed the sentiments of the religious leaders of his day. Acts chapter 3, we're going to read the first few verses here and then we'll sort of look at it in its details. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Peter and John are on their way to the temple. That shouldn't surprise us because we learned back in chapter 2, daily they were at the temple. The early Christians gathered at the temple for public and corporate worship daily. And where God's people are, the leaders of God's people are. And Peter and John were going there. As the apostles, they didn't miss out on the public gathering of the flock. They were there. They were the shepherds of the early church. And so when God's people got together, the leaders of God's people were there. So Peter and John are going up to the temple. And it's the ninth hour. Now the Jews reckon time from 6 o'clock in the morning. And they would count the hours. So 6 o'clock beginning, you count nine hours. And what time is it? It's three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, the Jews had three hours, three public hours of prayer. They had one at the third hour, that's 9 a.m. They had one at the sixth hour, that's noon. And they had an hour of prayer at three o'clock. The three o'clock hour was a little different. At three o'clock in the afternoon, that was the time of the evening sacrifice. Most people, if they came to the temple one time during that day, would not come at nine in the morning. They wouldn't come at noon. They would come at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because it was at that time that the majority of the people gathered together and there was the, the killing of the sacrificial lamb that day and the evening as part of the evening sacrifice. 
And they would come there, and this would be a very solemn time, as people sat there and prayed and worshipped. There was played out before them this redemptive scenario of a sacrificial lamb, and it reminded all of the people of the consequences of sin. That because they had sinned, an innocent thing had to die in its place to cover its sin. This is all being portrayed out here inside the temple. The busiest time of the day, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, when most of the people have gathered there, very solemn, very quiet, very contemplative time of the day, and people are coming, and it's the busiest time of the day, which is why there's a beggar at the gate of the temple. And Luke says in verse 1, it was the ninth hour, which was the hour of prayer, and a man, verse 2. Luke doesn't name the man because the name really is not as important as the details of the story. The man remains nameless for us. We're not given his lineage. We're not giving anything about him, almost as if he's just this generic example of what happened. And, and we're not really supposed to understand exactly who he was. We're just supposed to understand what had happened to him. Almost so you and I can more readily identify with the lame beggar, maybe. So he doesn't name him. Just a man, verse 2, who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, who they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. This man, as was his custom, was brought to the gate of the temple every day to beg alms. Why did he do that? Because he was lame. And notice how Luke sort of betrays his medical interest here as he gives us sort of the file on this lame man. He was lame from his mother's womb. He was born that way. And we find out later on that he was 44 years old. You'll see that later on in chapter 4. The man is 44 years old when this happens. So for 44 years, he has never known a day that he can stand upright. He's never known a day in his life when he can walk, when he can jump, when he can he is mobile in and of himself. He is born lame from his mother's womb, which means that this deformity is has nothing to do with a judgment of God on him for his sin. Whatever it was that caused his lameness, we don't know. Perhaps it was an illness that his mother had while pregnant. Perhaps something happened to his mother that deformed somehow deformed this fetus so that when the baby was born he wasn't able to walk. We don't know exactly if it was a disease or a genetic defect. We do know that it's not the result of the judgment of God. And we do know that it's not an industrial accident. So he's not eligible for workman's comp. He's not eligible for disability. He has none of those things that you and I would enjoy in a similar situation. He is born this way. And he has never walked a day in his life. Which is why people must carry him to the temple. Now how did they carry him? On a stretcher? In a cart? Who was it that carried him? Was it his family members? Did his wife have a hand in helping him to the temple gate every day? Was the man even married? We don't know that. Don't know that if he had children. Don't know anything about him, but we do know that God graced his life with people every day who would show up to carry him to the temple so that he could beg for alms. We do know that God in his common grace gave this man at least friends or people in his life who would bring him every day to the temple gate at 3 o'clock to beg alms of those who are coming in and out to worship God. And so there he sits at the base of the gate to the temple, which Peter says was the beautiful gate. Now, if you were a beggar and you were going to ask alms, the first place you'd go is the temple. You know why? Traffic. Uh, You want to beg alms, you don't go stand outside Les Schwab to beg alms. You go to Walmart is more traffic in and out of Walmart than there is in and out of Les Schwab. 
traffic, the number of people simply coming in and out of the temple every day. You get maximum exposure that way. This man is strategically placed. He's at the temple. And as people are going into the temple, they're going in there to offer their offerings, their silver and their gold. So he knows that the people coming into the temple have money. They've, they've got coins that they're going to offer to the Lord and to give their offering. So he knows they're carrying change that they can give to him. And people who are on their way to worship are more easily disposed to generosity than those who are not. You know why? Because there's nothing like flipping a few coins to a lame beggar to salve your guilty conscience. And if you're going to the temple to impress God with your piety, then on your way in, you flip the beggar a few coins and God will be impressed with how holy and righteous and generous you are. So strategically located, perfect position for a beggar to be. He's got traffic. He knows that the people who are coming in and out have money. And he knows that the people coming in and out are trying to impress God with their own righteousness. And so they're more predisposed to give. And there he sits at the bottom of the gate called Beautiful. Josephus describes this gate to us, Jewish historian. He says this gate was so large it took 20 men to close it. It was a gate that was made from Corinthian brass, and Josephus says it was more extravagant and more valuable than any of the other gates on the temple, even the ones that were plated or decorated with silver and gold. A solid brass gate. It was huge. It was this symbol. It was this demonstration of extravagance and wealth and worth and affluence. It is all of that. And look at the contrast. Here sits a beggar at the base of this gate that is known for its wealth. The beggar is surrounded by wealth that he cannot enjoy. And people who walk back and forth in front of him are carrying wealth like he will never know. And he sits, he who is seen in the eyes of men is completely worthless, at the base of the most valuable gate in the temple. Now, just that is enough to make you feel guilty. Isn't it? He's strategically located. And it's an intentional contrast. Magnificent, beautiful worth. And this beggar who sits at the base of that. And he's never known a day, never known a day in his life when he's been wealthy. He's never known a day in his life when he knows where his next meal is coming from. This beggar has never known a day when he is not uncertain about what his income is going to be that day. Will it be plenty? Will it be pittance? He doesn't know. He doesn't have that confidence. What does his income come from? The generosity of people. Listen, it's not because he doesn't want to work. It's not because he wasn't willing to work. But he couldn't. There was no programs to hire the handicapped in his day. There was no sort of government assistance that was available to beggars in those days. No social security. This man has never known a day in his life when he is not dependent on somebody else for almost everything. Can you, can you fathom that? All of us have been in our lives at some point where we have needed the assistance of somebody else. Church family, family member, a relative, a good friend who has helped us out when we're needful and we felt financial strain and somebody comes along and gives us a little boost to get us back on our feet. But let, let this lame beggar has never been on his feet. 
figuratively or literally. He's never known a day when he hasn't been dependent on somebody else. And that is humbling, is it not? Have you ever been in that position? It's humbling. He has to ask for everything. Everything. And he never knows whether he's going to get it or not. And there he sits. Surrounded by wealth. Surrounded by prosperity. And he has nothing. He has absolutely nothing. Now, he's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. He's not a believer. How do I know that? What do you find out about the church in Acts chapter 2? They were selling their possessions and giving to anybody as anybody might have need, taking care of the flock. That's what we read in Acts chapter 2. How do I know this guy's not a believer? Because he's at the temple begging. If he were a believer, he wouldn't have been begging. The church would have been taking care of his needs, making sure that he was supported, that he had everything that he needed. So he's not a believer. He's an unbeliever. Now you can picture this situation, and you can also relate to that beggar, can't you? At least in a spiritual level, because all of us know what it means to be born lame, spiritually. All of us know what it means to be born without the ability to do anything, to be dependent on somebody else for everything that we get. Do you have anything that you have not first received? Paul in Corinthians says no. You and I have nothing that we've not first received. And every single individual is born into this world without any ability to please God, to believe, to exercise faith, to repent, to trust, to do anything that is pleasing in His sight. All of us are born in a state of being in enmity with God, having no ability whatsoever, absolutely depraved, shipwrecked spiritually. We're DOA, dead on arrival, dead in our trespasses and sins. And friends, I can relate to this beggar in the spiritual sense. Maybe physically, I can't. But spiritually, I know where he's at. And you can picture that situation. You can picture him at the base of that beautiful gate. But along comes Peter and John. Along comes Peter and John in verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. He sees them coming. I don't know that the man recognized Peter and John as being apostles. I don't know that he recognized them as as being anything other than just looking like the common folk that they were. I don't even know that he he expected anything from them other than just a handout, but he notices them coming in and probably asks something from them just as he had asked from everybody else who came into the temple that day. He began asking to receive alms, and Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. Now that had to have come as a welcome sound to the ears of this beggar. Because if you're sitting at the temple gate every day asking for alms and you're carried there by somebody else and they put you down and people daily are coming in and coming out, you have to understand that even though he's strategically located and even though people are going in with money and they're predisposed to be generous because they want to please God with their acts of righteousness, sitting at that gate could not have been a lucrative gig. It couldn't have been. Because as the beggar sits there every day, the people who are new to the temple will give him a little bit of money. The next day they'll give him even less. And they notice he's there every single day. So every other day. And then once a week. I mean, after all, if you're going to support the man continually, you might as well marry him. Right? Bring him into your household and claim him as a dependent and have him there with you all the time if you're going to be giving him support every day. So people would 
likely just after a while, see him as part of the landscape. I mean, you go in once and your conscience feels guilty because you don't give him some money. But the more you walk past without giving some money, the less your conscience begins to bother you. And before long, you can walk right through the beautiful gate. You don't even notice the beggar sitting there. It's just part of the landscape, just part of the temple furniture. And he asks that money and you can walk right past him. But this day, Peter and John say to him, look at us. Oh, I bet his ears turned to that, right? And he's getting some attention. And so he, obviously you can just kind of picture him scooting across the dirt over closer to them to get close enough to, to get his hand up to receive alms or some sort of coin from Peter and John. And Peter says to him, silver and gold I do not have. Oh, then why'd you ask me to look at you? Right? For a moment, that had to have been a needle that just burst that balloon of hope that this beggar had that he was going to get bread that night. But Peter says, we don't have silver, we don't have gold. I do have something though. I'll give it to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Now I want you to notice that Peter used his whole name. Uh, Peter didn't say in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Why didn't he do that? Jesus is a common name. It's like the name Joshua or Josh today, Jim. It's just a Jacob. It's a common name. So he doesn't say in the name of Jesus. Peter's more specific than that. He doesn't say in the name of Christ. Because there are false Christs and false prophets who will perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, Jesus said. So he doesn't identify him as Jesus. He doesn't identify him as Jesus Christ. But he specifically puts on a tag that everybody standing there who heard this would instantly understand exactly who Peter was identifying. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, stand up and walk. Not just any Jesus, not just anybody who might claim to be the Christ. In the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, who came from Nazareth. One individual. Do you remember what Peter said in his first sermon? Men and brethren, I say to you, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by signs and wonders which God performed through him in your midst. Him you crucified. Not just Jesus, the man. Jesus, that one from Nazareth. Because remember what the sign said on the top of the cross? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now Peter identifies Him as the one that was crucified. The crucified one. Removing any doubt in anybody's mind as to exactly who He's talking about. In the name of Jesus, Christ, the Nazarene, stand up and walk. And so Peter reaches out his hand, the text says, and raised the man up. And he stood up, Luke says, immediately. Look at verse 5. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I don't possess silver and gold, but what I have I give to you. Verse 7, seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. Now there's something that happens here that we're not let in on until a little bit later. I'm going to give you a preview of it. There's an element in the narrative that Luke doesn't mention now, but he mentions it in Peter's sermon. Down in verse 16 of chapter uh, 3, look at verse 16. Peter says, on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. The one thing that's not mentioned up earlier here in the account of the miracle is the faith that is present. When Peter said in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, there is some faith on behalf of this beggar, some faith that is given to him where he believes in that name 
or in the ability of this Jesus who was crucified and who undoubtedly he had heard had been raised from the dead, there's some amount of faith that he has in that ability of that man to heal him. And on the basis of that faith, Peter says, this man has been made well. So there's faith there. The man believes. Probably just at the mention of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, God reaches down and does a work in this beggar, and Peter reaches out his hand, the beggar grabs it, and he raises him up and stands him up. And Luke says, immediately, his ankles and his feet were strengthened. Now once again, Luke betrays to us his medical interests. Remember, Luke is the Apostle Paul's personal physician. Writing this from Rome, Luke is a doctor, and so he gives to us the details of the case. His feet and his ankles were strengthened. Maybe that indicates what it was that caused him to be lame. Maybe it was some deformity in his feet and his ankles. But Luke says it was immediately he was raised up and they were strengthened and there he stood. For the first time, he stood. And it was an immediate miracle. Peter didn't help him up off the ground and get him so his legs kind of buckled underneath of him and then say, okay, now you go home and you work on walking and you claim your miracle and God will do a work in your life. None of that. Peter didn't say, you claim your miracle and by faith you get out of your wheelchair, you grab onto that walker and you keep claiming your miracle all the way home. Peter didn't do that. Yet that is exactly what happens in these modern day circus shows of modern day healers, isn't it? Is it immediate? No. No, and they got people lined up down the aisles that want to get healed. And they'll heal 10 or 15 people who crawl out of their wheelchair and hobble and crawl across the stage and they say, oh, he's been healed. She's been healed. Not so with the miracles that Jesus did. Mark 5.29, a miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she'd been healed of her affliction. Immediately. Immediately. No claiming of a miracle. No claiming of a healing. No such thing as a progressive healing in the New Testament. No such thing as a miraculous healing that takes months to get over the disability or the illness. Nothing like that in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 8, and Jesus said to the centurion, Go, and it shall be done to you as you've believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Luke 5.13, He stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. Luke 17, verse 14, He saw them and he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. John chapter 5, Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Immediately. That's the characteristic of a miraculous healing. It's immediate. And not only is it immediate, it is complete. It is a complete healing. The man stood up and he stood for the first time. What must that have been like? He's never walked a day in his life. But he stands. And listen, not only is the deformity, whatever it was in his feet and his ankles that was causing the disability, not only was that removed and healed, but they were strengthened. You know what happens to muscles when they're not used? They atrophy, don't they? Uh, Peter doesn't send him off to physical therapy to strengthen the ligaments and the joints and the muscles that he's never used before. doesn't do that. The deformity is removed. The muscles that he has never used are there and they are strengthened. And then he begins to walk and to leap and to praise God. He doesn't have to learn to walk. He doesn't have to learn what it is to coordinate your nerves and your muscles and the, the things around you that we pick up by sensory perception. He doesn't have to learn any of that. 
He doesn't wobble at all. There's no awkwardness. There's no pain. There's no discomfort. There's no learning curve, no learning process at all. It is as if he's been walking for 43 years. It is as if he has been walking his whole life. It's immediate and it is complete. You see, you and I use our muscles and our brain sends our muscles messages and we don't even think about it. We don't, we don't even have to think about it. It's just automatic. My hand motions up here, the movement of my legs, my feet going from one side of the platform to the other. I don't have to think those things through. I can walk just as naturally. I've been walking for 32 years. It's, it's second nature to me. It's easy. If you've never walked before, even though you may have the muscles to do it and the deformity might be gone, you would expect that he would have to learn that process. No. The ability and the knowledge and the reflexes and everything, it's all there. He never has to learn it. That's how complete this miracle is. Now what's central to the passage is the name of Jesus. You know, Peter could have avoided a whole lot of conflict if he'd have just left that name out. He could have healed this guy if he'd have just said, walk. But he had to insert that phrase, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. That causes, he goes to prison for that, folks. He's arrested for that. And the crowd gathers and Peter preaches this message and they arrest him later on, beginning of chapter 4. And because of he used that name, he hits the conflict. If he'd have just kept it quiet. But could he keep it quiet? It's the name of Jesus Christ that gives spiritual life to the dead. There's no power apart from that name. He couldn't have healed anybody by just saying, walk. Because Christ had to be the focus. And Peter wanted to identify to all of these people who it was that made this man walk. And I want you to notice the second thing here. The man got more than he ever asked for. Did you notice that? The beggar asked Peter for alms. Peter gave him legs. Hmm? Isn't that beautiful? He got way more than he'd ever asked for. All he was wanting was a handout. Peter gave him a hand up. All he was asking for was sustenance to buy bread. The beggar got the bread of life. All he was asking for was some money. And Peter said, I'll give you the ability to earn your own. And he raised him up. That's exactly what it is with us when we trust Christ, is it not? When I trusted Christ, I was just coming to him for forgiveness. That's all I wanted. I had offended the king of the universe, and I knew that because of my sin, I was going to perish for eternity. All I wanted was forgiveness. I got so much more than forgiveness. I got his word. I got the indwelling of the spirit. I got spiritually healed. I got fellowship in his family. I was adopted as a son and I was blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So much more than I asked for. All I wanted was forgiveness. All this beggar wanted was something to buy one more meal. And he got way more than he ever bargained for. More than he deserved. More than he asked for. Far more than he expected. But that's the way God works. So what does the beggar do? Well, look at the text. Verse 8, With a leap he stood upright and he began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So he's coming into the temple with Peter and John. And obviously glomming on to Peter and John, they were, everybody's taking note of him and all the people saw him walking and praising God. Verse 10 says, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And he comes into the temple with Peter and John. And can you imagine the ruckus that that would have caused? What time is it? Three o'clock in the afternoon, the most solemn hour of the day. Everybody in the temple is quiet, contemplative. They are in prayer. The sacrifice is taking place. 
And in comes this disturbance of this man who's leaping around and praising God. And you can imagine every eye in that place would have turned to look at that guy. And the priest who sacrificed in the lamb. You can imagine the thoughts that were going through people's head. Some of them may be new to the city that day. Coming in, they saw him on the way in. They gave him some money and they go on in and here they see this guy walking and jumping and leaping. They think, man, I got took. I gave this guy money just a few minutes ago and here he is coming into the temple. Other people maybe have seen this man for years sitting at the temple. They think, I knew it was a sham. I knew it was a sham all along. I knew this guy could walk and he was putting this on for us. And maybe some others were sitting there thinking to themselves, how dare you disrupt our worship with your praise? We are here contemplating the sacrifice and we are praying. And here you come in jumping and shouting and praising God. Somebody needs to take this rabble-rouser outside the temple. Very possible that this man had never been inside that part of the temple because he had a deformity. They weren't allowed into those parts of the temple if you had a physical deformity. Very possible this is his first time into the temple. He maybe has never even seen what goes on in there. But he's sure creating a ruckus. And Luke says every eye was fixed upon him and they recognized him as the one that used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple and beg alms. And they were in wonder and they were in awe. They were in amazement at what had happened to him. And I wonder if some of them thought back to Isaiah chapter 35 where Isaiah says, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the, deer, ear, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer. What a beautiful fulfillment of Isaiah's words, is it not? The lame will leap like a deer. Now what do we do with this passage for you and I in today's context? Because, folks, we can't just walk up to Scripture and just claim our healing. Say, I'm gonna, I'll have that healing. I'll have that miracle. Name it and claim it. You name the miracle. You claim the miracle. You name the healing. You claim the healing, and it's yours by faith. That's false teaching. We don't have the freedom to do that. So what do we make of this for you and I? First, I want you to notice the purpose of God. The man was born blind. Do you remember John chapter... Sorry, the man was born lame. Do you remember John chapter 9? The man born blind that Jesus encountered? And the disciples, interestingly enough, Jesus was leaving the temple that day in John chapter 9 with His disciples, and they come across, as they're leaving the temple, a man who was born blind. And the disciples said to Him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And what did Jesus see, say? Neither of them sinned. This man's blindness was given to him in order that the works of God might be manifest in him. In other words, there's a purpose for his suffering. There's a purpose for his infirmity. The disciples didn't understand that there could be a purpose other than judgment. But Jesus said, the purpose is that the works of God might be manifest in him. And then Jesus healed him. You and I can't claim our healing. You and I can't claim our miracle and just say, I'll have that one, I'll take that one, I'll name it and I'll claim it. That's not our prerogative. But you and I can understand that in the midst of our infirmities that God has a purpose. For 44 years, this beggar could not walk. But God had a purpose in that. And He glorified Himself that day through Peter by healing this man. You and I can glimpse a little bit of the purpose of God, that He has something for our good, something for His glory intended in our infirmities. The second thing the passage shows us is the power of God. You understand God is still sovereign? He's still powerful? He's still almighty? And even though you and I might have our different infirmities, whether it be we feel like we are an emotional cripple or a spiritual cripple or a social cripple, or whatever inability or infirmity that you and I have physically or mentally or whatever it is, we still can trust in a sovereign God, 
a powerful God, a mighty God who is able to heal completely. And He may not choose to heal you or I of that infirmity. He may choose instead to glorify Himself through that infirmity in some way that you and I cannot understand. Eventually, we will all be ultimately healed. Because in heaven there's no sickness, there's no terminal illness, there's no infirmities, there's no cripples, there's no disease at all. And when we're with Christ, all of that will be taken care of, will be done away with. Every believer, no matter what our physical infirmity is here, will be ultimately healed. But we have confidence and faith in the God who is able to give us joy and praise and make us leap at least spiritually in the midst of our infirmities and trust Him in it because He's powerful and because He has a purpose. Our Father, we thank You for the lessons from Acts chapter 3. And I pray, God, that You would help us to have the faith and the trust to see You in the midst of our infirmities and to understand a little bit of Your purpose. We thank You that You are a sovereign, awesome, glorious God who is able to heal at a moment's notice. You demonstrate that here. We pray that if we are not healed as a result of our prayer and our trust in You, that You would give us the faith still to trust You in the midst of that and glorify You in the midst of our infirmities. As Your people, we love You and we thank You. We thank You that ultimately we do not need a physical healing because we have been healed spiritually. We have had our sins placed on Christ who bore our burden and our sin in His own body on the tree. And by His stripes, we are spiritually healed. We thank You for that consolation. We thank You that You took our sin from us and, and healed us completely in that. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.